So you're an attorney and you've decided to go out on your own. Now what? You need a plan and you're not alone. Join expert host Adriana Linares and her distinguished guests on New Solo. Tune into the lively conversation as they share insights and information about how to successfully run your law firm here on Legal Talk Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Solo on Legal Talk Network. I'm Adriana Linares, a legal technology trainer and consultant. I help lawyers and law firms use technology better. I hope today's episode will help you, if not inspire you, to do the same. I have some really cool guests on. We're going to talk about blockchain. But before I do that, I want to make sure and take a moment or two, possibly four, to thank our sponsors. I want to make sure and thank Ross Intelligence, the legal research platform that leverages AI to get to the heart of legal issues fast. Go to rossintelligence.com for a 14-day free trial. Nexa, formerly known as Answer One, is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for law firms. Learn more by giving them a call at 800-267-9371 or online at nexa.com. Of course, I want to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com, and that's C-L-I-O.com. LawClerk is where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Visit LawClerk.legal to learn how to increase your productivity and your profits by working with talented freelance lawyers. Okay, here we go. We're going to talk about um, one of these topics that everybody wants to know something about, but the little bit that we read or watch on a YouTube video, it still seems like one of those topics that's hard to grasp. So I'm very excited to have Shauna Hoffman and Scott Stornetta with me. Before I ask you to introduce yourselves, which one of you two invented blockchain? Shauna, let's start with you. As a lover of the blockchain, maybe not necessarily the inventor, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this business and what you're doing these days. Absolutely. No, I am not the inventor of blockchain, but I wish I was. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But um, no, I, you know, I found blockchain uh, a few years ago. So as many people know, I moved to IBM from a career as an expert witness in e-discovery. And when I was in e-discovery, one of the problems that I had was when the judge would ask anyone, including me, any of the expert witnesses, did collect all the data, there was no way to say yes to that because data is literally everywhere. So I thought moving to IBM, moving and building AI solutions was going to be the answer to that. Quickly, I realized that without an organizational system and without a system that was trustworthy, there was no way to have the right AI and the best AI um, or data for the AI system itself. And so blockchain has now become our answer to you know, really start to keep a ledger of that trusted data. And we're starting to see everyone from big automotive manufacturers to small companies start to put their data, um, not in blockchain, but start to keep it in the ledger. So it's pretty fascinating to see where we're seeing in the system. So I'm thrilled uh, that I'm here, but then also even more thrilled that Scott is here to talk about it. Me too. I'm excited. Before we move on to Scott, I just want to say a couple more things about you because You are a very amazing woman. You and I met 20 years ago when you worked for Lexus, and I worked at a law firm, and you slowly like morphed and transitioned and done all these very cool things. But one of the things that you did was found Women in E, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Just real quick. I mean, that's such a cool thing because now there are chapters, I believe, all over the world. Yeah, there's over 5,000 women involved and many men now. Uh, It is on its 14th year, which amazes me. Mm -hmm. And it was an idea that I had along with Mona Shell and with Mary uh, Margaret Hazinga. And Margaret uh, was with, of course, Williams and Connolly. And we realized that just were not a lot of women in the industry, nor was there a lot of support for men moving into the industry. And so by founding the organization, we gave um, and kind of unknowingly, we kind of wanted to start getting together and educating each other. All of a sudden, our first meeting was 50 women, which we were shocked by. By the end of the summer, we had 2,000 women signed wow. up. And women calling you know, from all over the world saying, we want to start a chapter. And law firms were very supportive. We were hosting the meetings there. And it just grew by leaps and bounds. And the focus was, of course, education and um, giving women and 
you know, honestly, minorities an opportunity to not have to take away time during their, their day. They could come over lunch, they can learn about the newest technologies, and then they could go back. So they weren't taking away from their families. We fed them, they didn't have to worry about anything financially. And we started to see a huge growth in the industry of women kind of breaking through their own personal glass ceilings. And um, I'm, you know, I'm shocked that it got so big, but I'm so happy it did. Yeah. Yeah, So thank you. And then my, so about a little over two years ago now, about three, um, I started diversity and blockchain with four other female attorneys who are amazing. And it was the same issue. We just saw that there were a lot of, um, and, and with this one, it was really minorities in general not coming into the blockchain space, and we wanted to make sure that, that voice was heard. So um, we have a white paper that was accepted by Congress um, onto the congressional record that dives into diversity in the industry itself. So it's pretty neat to see that kind of continue on. That's awesome. So when I scheduled you, I said, you know, do you want to come to the podcast and talk about blockchain? You were like, yeah, and can I invite my friend Scott Starnetta? He's like the father of the blockchain. And I said, hell yes. So Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to to do this with us. I'm sure just like Shauna, you're very busy. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm happy to talk about that, but I want to put in a disclaimer here right up at the front, which is I'd rather describe myself as co-inventor of what I want to call the early blockchain. And the reason I say that is not because I want to disinherit ownership of the blockchain, but that the blockchain is something multi-layered. And there are many contributions that build on top of the early work that we did. And so I wouldn't want to think I'm anyone think I'm trying to take credit for the whole stack, if you will. Sure. But look forward to uh, to talking about the early blockchain and what blockchain really is in its essence, as well as uh, how it extends into additional applications. So my own background, really, I think the relevant part uh, begins when I was a grad student at Stanford. And there was a very interesting uh, news item in the scientific community. I was in the physics uh, department. But there was a story that broke about a very prominent pair of researchers who had published some terrific, some very provocative results, and then come to find out the results were provocative in part because someone had made up all the data, and they did it by doctoring the records. And at the time, I thought, you know, there's going to be a time when all the world's data is digital. In the future. Yes. And there won't be any way to tell what an original record is from something that was just changed the day before it was entered into evidence in court. Hmm. And we're going to need to solve that problem. Otherwise, we won't have any confidence in the records that are created. And so that was my introduction to the issue. And shortly after that, I graduated, came back to the East to work at Bell Communications Research, part of the whole Bell Labs tradition. And I didn't know much about cryptography, but I went down to some very smart people in the cryptography group and said, I don't, I don't know the cryptography, but this problem is going to be an enormous problem. And if we get a jump on it, we can make some contributions here before the smart people jump in and try to take all the credit. And so <laughs> that was really my introduction to this issue. And so, again, by way of just giving people some a little bit of perspective. So the work that we did, this is in the early 90s. And a company was spun off, a company called Surety, that started operating a blockchain. And we'll talk more about what that means in a minute. But all of this is fully 15 years before the Bitcoin paper came out, where so much interest got generated. But in fact, if you look at the Bitcoin paper, just to give you some reference point. There are eight footnotes in the Bitcoin paper, and four of them are references, fully half of them are references to the work that my collaborator, Stuart Haber, and I did back at the old Bell Labs. AKA the two of you 
Satoshi? Uh, not going to go there, although it mm-hmm. is kind of funny that um, the f- first I heard about the Bitcoin paper was when people that I did not know started sending me postal mail and email <laughs> saying, um, I see that, you know, you're a significant fraction of the footnotes in the Bitcoin paper. And I also Googled you online and see that you speak Japanese. Oh, And so just wondering. And um, <laughs> so I, I uh, this is getting a, a little bit stock, but uh, I always give the same answer as to whether I'm Satoshi. The answer is, I don't know how to say it any clearer than that. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> That's really cool. Why do you speak Japanese? Did you oh, well, study there? Did you there marry you go. I, I actually was a missionary there for two years, lived no in kidding. Tokyo and north of Tokyo, and then came back and taught immersion Japanese and then worked as a Japanese patent translator. No kidding. That's really neat. That's so cool. So just a side question, because of course, everyone's fascinated with whomever Satoshi could be or the group that they are. Why do you think he, she, or they keep it such a secret? I think it's a fair question. And I want to sort of go on record as saying that I think the evidence, first of all, points to it being centered in a single person that perhaps had assistance. But I think the notion that it's a group that uses a single person pseudonym, I don't think that's warranted by the evidence. And in fact, I think there's a fair amount of evidence to the contrary there. Now, I know that 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 whole notion that there's this whole clique of people that are silently hiding behind a name makes it a little more intriguing sure but yeah the scientist in me wants to say that i don't think the evidence supports that okay. certainly it doesn't mean that this that, that this one person who was the principal figured out everything on their own but I, I i think it speaks with the voice of a single person and as to the secrecy issue i think um it really doesn't require a great leap of faith to see that someone that was in the kind of crypto anarchists community in which I certainly was a participant, maybe the crypto libertarian side is what I'd say the particular (laughs) branch I was in, not, not full anarchy, but (laughs) that they have a deep suspicion about institutions, particularly very powerful institutions. And so the idea of remaining anonymous from the get-go and then dropping out of sight, I think is consistent with that mindset. So, you know, there's a, there's a phrase called Occam's razor that's used often in scientific discussions. And it says that the correct explanation should be the one that is simplest, but still adequate. And it's called a razor because the idea is you cut away everything that's unnecessary. And I think that argument of Occam's razor argues for a single into a single person and argues for just a natural concern about large institutions as, ex, as being the sort of minimal explanation for that. That's amazing. But I guess we're all grateful for whatever yes. they what they built and then like you said being able to build and and sort of grow upon I, that absolutely and i do want to be clear that while many of the design decisions that were made in creating bitcoin on top of the basic blockchain structure while many of them are not necessarily the ones i would have made it's still a tour de force it, it yeah. it's a it's a wonderful intellectual achievement That doesn't mean that it shouldn't still be criticized point by point on its merits and that we took that we separate the hype from the reality and what it's useful for and what it's not. But absolutely uh, hats off to this individual for uh, kind of putting pieces together in a very provocative, thoughtful way. No, I love it. So in trying to break apart the hype from the reality, can one of you tell us, I mean, 
I'm sure people must ask you all the time, what is it? How do you explain it? Surely you have come up with this at this point with a way to bring it down to terms that smart people like our listeners and, and me, you know, I'm smart enough, can can really understand or at least grasp a basic understanding of what blockchain is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Scott has a great example with the paper. So I'm sure. The torn paper. I think that 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 I think will will hopefully help the um, the listeners understand the original basis of blockchain and what we can do about it. And then I think if we break it down into the cryptocurrency discussion, which is an app on blockchain, and then also the blockchain for business. So that there's two separate because for attorneys, it's mostly going to be the blockchain for business mm-hmm. when they're creating things for their firms. But the cryptocurrency side, of course, is where they'll practice and make the most money. Hmm. I think that's a great distinction. Again, all of their mafia-connected clients may want to pay them in Bitcoin, but (laughs) other than that, they're going to sort of be sitting over on the enterprise side. Adam, you can just cut that whole um, (laughs) phrase out. Um, So let me use... I would uh, leave it. I I want to build on the the point that Shauna made, and that is there's one way of explaining the technology that has nothing to do with computers and is, in fact, goes it's retrospective um, historically in the legal tradition. And that is, I think everyone has heard the phrase an indentured servant, but far fewer people understand what an indenture is. An indenture is a contract of a particular form. It's a contract that's written out on a single piece of paper in triplicate. And then the paper is torn along a jagged edge that divides the paper up into the three pieces and each of the parties to the contract receives a copy. Now, why is it torn in the particular way that it's torn? Go go for it. I think I can guess. So that the three pieces can be brought back together and there's no doubt. Like if you cut it with scissors, there'd be doubt. But if you tore it, there would be such detail that it would be obvious which pieces went together. That is exactly right. It's that the tearing in this random way creates this jagged edge. Namely, it creates a denture, the same root word that we use for teeth because of the way teeth interlock. That's why it's called an indenture. And it's the jagged edge being brought back together that provides proof of authenticity. Huh. Okay, that's what an indenture is. And in a sense, the blockchain is simply a modern version of the indenture. It's a way of taking not physical records, but digital records, just the literal zeros and ones themselves, not the flash drive that they're sitting on or the DVD that they're recorded on, but the actual bits themselves and finding a way to create an indenture, finding a way to tear the document up in a certain randomized way, and then distributing to each of the parties that has an interest an exact copy of it, so that if anyone were to try to tamper with it, it would be immediately evident. That's what the blockchain is. So when we hear about terms like the distributed ledger system, that's what you mean when everybody gets a copy. Now, Break it down a little more basic for us. Where is this ledger? What is it built on? And how do I get a copy? Right. So again, this is at this jumping off point, we already start to diverge into the different varieties of blockchain that Shauna previously referred to. Okay. So let's take a simple example. Suppose we have the kind of system that IBM has set up in the trade space, or uh, maybe let's use the food space. And the idea is we've got uh, an outbreak of E. coli or something in romaine lettuce, and suddenly there's a need to remove all the romaine lettuce off the shelves that were produced in a certain location, I don't know, Petaluma, California maybe, and we've got to trace all the places that that romaine lettuce got to. Well, the idea is in that case, the entire supply chain, that entire industry, all the people that touch 
produce as it goes from farm all the way to the Walmart, or if you want to pay more, all the way to the Whole Foods store. <laughs> um, we need to have all of those people on a common ledger so that at each stage in the process, they all submit the information. And therefore, each of the parties would hold a copy of the ledger. Everyone that's involved in the process would hold a copy of the ledger. That's what we might call a private ledger, because the only people that get copies of it are the actual people involved in the transaction. It might be different if we're talking say on the Bitcoin side, where the ledger becomes a public document that anyone that wants to look at it can, whether they're a party to the transaction or not. But I hope that's responsive to your question to how do I get a copy of the ledger? <laughs> Basically, it's either be invited to the party that's creating that particular blockchain, okay? Or if it's a public ledger, then you should have simple access to it just without credentials. Yeah, and there's there's actually a really good point that you just made in public and private blockchains. This isn't like the internet. There's not just one big grand huge internet or one big grand huge blockchain. Yeah, and I think that's some of the confusion um, sure. that's been out there. Yeah, but the public blockchain, of course, with the cryptocurrency is global. It is worldwide. When we start to build out the private blockchains, then that's where they're very locked down. So, for example, the blockchain that Walmart has, um, IBM Food Trust, that is locked down even to just the supplier. To the, so there's 200 suppliers involved. Each supplier can see their transfers to Walmart, but they can't see the other supplier's transfers to Walmart. So Walmart can see everything, um, but it's all permission-based. And so give me a little primer on the actual technology. So there's a block, and there's a chain, and they're stacked on top of each other? All right. That's great. I'm happy to pick that thread up. Here's the idea. It's that there's a block of information that perhaps you are involved with, and then there's a next person who has either a related document or a completely unrelated document. And each, each of those we can think of as individual blocks. And this is a simplified version. Those that are thinking, I don't understand what a Merkle tree, just, just a shout out to you people. I really do know what a Merkle tree is, but <laughs> allow me to keep it simple here. I have a okay? lot of those so, listeners. So just think of each of the individual documents if we're going to stick with the food trust example, each, you know, I processed the romaine lettuce at this time, at this date, so on and so forth. And the next guy, the next person, next person. Each of those documents is linked using a very clever cryptographic mechanism called a hash function, which I wish I had invented, but I didn't. Okay. The blockchain wasn't enough, Scott. But... Uh, but it's, it's linking those blocks together in a way that tampering with any of them will reveal the evidence of tampering in all of them. And that's what we're doing. We are chaining together independent records in such a way that we are now creating those tears, going back to the indenture example, that only fit together in one way. And so all the parties in the chain can quickly verify whether someone further upstream in the chain has modified anything. So I guess there's a big component or the main component then is cryptography. Yes. Right. So tell us a little bit, give us a little bit of information for those of us who've only seen the movie Enigma, and that's as much as we know about cryptography. Give us the basics. Which is a great movie. Yeah. Okay, let's just hang on that for a second or two. Because it really is. Okay. Um, well, traditionally, cryptography was about taking a message and encoding it in such a way that an intermediary could not recover any information from it, but that when it got to the intended party, they could run a reverse process and decrypt it. But it has come over time to include much more sophisticated things besides simply encoding a message, you know, with that Ovaltine decoder ring and then decoding it, okay? It 
it has come to mean many of the increasingly useful manipulations of digital data that allow us to perform different operations, such as, is there an equivalent to signing a document? And in fact, there is something called a digital signature. That's an outgrowth of cryptography. And when I say that, a digital signature, I don't mean someone on a digitizing pad writing out their signature. It's a mathematical process that is akin to signatures, but completely independent from what we do with our hands and a pen. And so cryptography has also come to encompass things called smart contracts, which I don't mean to touch on any more than that right now, but a whole host of mechanisms that, for example, would allow you to, um, let's give one example, suppose you are trying to buy something at a grocery store and it requires you to be over 21 years old. Okay. Well, how do you, how do you validate that? Well, typically you'll show them your driver's license. But if you think about that, given the privacy concerns that many people appropriately have today, your feeling is what I'd like to show them is simply the evidence that I'm over 21. Do I need to show them how old I am? Do they need to see what my driver's license number is? And, and there's yeah. a whole list of facts that we'd prefer to not disclose. And yet right now, we, we kind of are all or nothing. We have right. to show them everything in order to just validate the one question that they legitimately should have access to. Well, cryptography now includes not just this encoding and decoding, but these elaborate algorithms that allow you to probe data and find out that the person is either over 21 or less than 21, but not know anything more about them. And so really when we talk about cryptography, we're talking about all sorts of encoding of social interaction that increasingly can be done with digital data and gives us much more fine tuning of the flexibility of what we choose to do with the records or not. Amazing. Shauna, do you want to add on any tips or suggestions or explanations that, I mean, I, I think we've discussed on a really good job. <laughs> we, it really I, has. Suddenly I don't, I I don't get know it. how much. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. For it, sure. I think that the one thing I would say just in regards to that comment is everyone tries to overcomplicate it because it really is, it's a simple technology and it seems like it should be much more complicated than it actually is. And so as we start to put it into our day-to-day lives, it'll be kind of like the internet, something you will normally use, yes. and it's not going to be a big deal in the future. And we don't really understand the internet. We just are glad it's here. Thank God, right? Yeah, I mean, seriously. <laughs> it's an amazing invention. Indeed. Well, I think that was a great start to the conversation, sort of explaining the history of um, the background behind and a little bit of technology. So we'll take a quick break, listen to some messages from some sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some day-to-day -day applications and maybe what we can look toward in the future when it comes to legal-specific uses of the blockchain. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and then get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code NEWSOLO10. That's NEWSOLO10. And do that at Clio.com, C-L-I-O.com. Artificial intelligence won't outpace lawyers anytime soon, but lawyers who use AI are already outpacing lawyers who do not. With Ross Intelligence, lawyers conducting legal research leverage AI to get to the heart of legal issues fast. Ask a question on the Ross Legal Research platform and Ross will return on point case law. Go to rossintelligence.com today and get a 14-day free trial. Use promo code LEGALTALK for 10% off. All right, and we're back with Shauna Hoffman and Scott Stornetta. We're talking about blockchain. We just covered the basics, I think. And I did want to go back and ask you one thing. We mentioned the original paper. Can you tell us what we would Google if we wanted to find that original paper? Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to Google the 
the Bitcoin paper. Okay. And then simply go to the end of the Bitcoin paper and look at the footnote. And when you get to one that says Haber and Stornetta, you know you've... Okay. Those, there's only eight footnotes. It's not a large task. And you'll see that half of them are pointing to those original papers. I wanted to spend a few minutes asking you to give us some ideas and examples about the impact of blockchain and legal. We hear a lot about things like being able to, of course, track and secure monetary transactions, identity verification, which you just actually sort of talked about in a a more societal way, Um, authentication of things, smart contracts you mentioned. Where are you seeing, and I don't know how much time you spend in legal, Scott, I think you probably spend your time in a lot of places, and I know Shauna has spent a lot in legal. So um, notary services, you know, give me some examples that a lawyer who's listening to this would say, well, that makes a lot of sense of how I might use the blockchain, or maybe I've seen that in action now and I didn't even know it. I think smart contracts is a great place to start because we keep hearing about it, but it seems harder to understand than I think it really is. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Let me go to something. I mean, smart contracts and tokens and those sorts of things are, of course, the things that get a lot of attention. But I'd like to start with something far more basic. Oh, good. And that is, let's just talk about basic internal corporate records. And that is, records can be backdated. Sure. And when it's a digital record, you can backdate it if you're sophisticated enough without leaving any trace of the fact that you've tampered with it after the fact. But if records are as part of the standard operating procedure of an enterprise, if records are checked into the blockchain on a routine basis, then you can know that the records that you're looking at are the original records created at the time uh, that that they claim they were created and not altered after the fact. And so one of the simplest issues that the blockchain can do without revolutionizing anything is that dis- attorneys should attach far more significance, far more confidence to records that were routinely as part of the standard operating procedure checked into a blockchain than those that weren't. And this actually goes, if you will, not to carry coals to Newcastle, since this is a legal podcast, this goes to the heart of the so-called hearsay exemption for business records. What that's about is that, you know, hearsay evidence is not admissible because of its uh, being removed two steps from uh, the the witness, and the witness can't be cross-examined in a hearsay situation. And yet, if you think about business records, they are, in a sense, all hearsay because the people that the anonymous people that were creating them day after day are not being brought into court typically. And yet we have something called the hearsay exemption for business records. Why why are business records admissible even though they fall under the hearsay? And here's the reason. The reasoning has been you're right. Uh, it's two steps removed, but these businesses operate on the fact that they're working with authentic records. They wouldn't be able to continue their day-to-day operations if they couldn't trust in the records. And therefore, we can have a certain level of trust in business records. And all of that was true until records became fully digital because a business could operate day after day using its records and relying on them and therefore reinforcing the notion that these are trustable records. And then the moment before they bring them into court or submit them as evidence, they could simply change all of the records. And so blockchain, quite frankly, its first and simplest application is to restore the logic for why the hearsay exemption for business records should persist why we still should be able to rely on business records. And so that's really my first point. Um, And I hope attorneys can immediately relate to the fact that records that are routinely checked into the blockchain are simply have higher evidentiary value. And they should, you know, I I say this all the time about lawyers and 
and especially in like the example that you just gave, they're such a trusting society. It's so weird because their job when they're talking to a client is to start by, you know, breaking down any trust that there might be, but within each other, between each other, or even me, when I walk into a law firm and they've decided to hire me as a technology consultant, man, they will hand me the keys to the kingdom. We trust you. Here are all of our passwords, all of our documents, right. have access to everything. And they also put a lot of trust, social trust, into those documents. You know, So for years, of course, lawyers have said to me, I don't want anybody to change it, so I send it as a PDF. And then I have to remind them, oh, well, it's been about, I don't know, 15 or 16 years now that PDFs have been fully editable. Right. Um, so, you know, they just have this trust. And I think that we've just been really lucky for hundreds of years in legal that this hasn't been a bigger problem at a broader level. Of course, there's always going to be examples where somebody is deciding to change documents or change the date or change a figure, whether it's the client or the lawyers, there's always that example. But I think what you're describing will really hit home because it's true. Why do we put so much trust? And, the, and when it comes to litigation, it's all about producing documents, which none were born from the blockchain. Right. <laughs> so right. It's, it's really amazing. Shauna, what do you have to add on? You know, actually reminds me of a case that I had uh, about a decade ago. And uh, unfortunately, the company, so I was with one of the big e-discovery companies at 7 a.m. one morning. I got a call along with all the other consultants um, who were director level and above that the company had been bankrupt. Go get all of your client information as soon as possible. I had seven locations. We sent people all over the world. There was one location we could not get the data from. They'd hmm. already locked the doors. So, I mean, I literally had teams out with, it, with duffel bags, you know, gathering the hard drives. So, unfortunately, it was the one of the largest MDLs we've ever had in the United States. And we had no idea what was on the hard drives that was left in that one location because we had sent for processing all over the place. Now, this, of course, is kind of in the earlier days of e-discovery, but it took eight months for that data to get out of the bankruptcy court. And so you start wow. to have all of these issues. It was so painful. All of these issues. And if we had been able to use blockchain back at that point, we would have had a chain of custody that, because the chain of custody, of course, was on the hard drives. Again, looking back, I definitely would have changed our processes, but we've never had an issue. I've been doing it for years, never had an issue. And it was just such a shock and a surprise. Um, the strength of blockchain is transparency and traceability. And with the traceability, you have your ledger and then, you know, as, as we start to look at the chain of custody, we will know where those documents were at all times. So it's, it's an amazing opportunity, you know, to really start to really change the industry and not to have issues like that. Yeah, and I know a lot of the large law firms are starting to use blockchain in ways like that. Um, and it's amazing. You know, it's obviously going to revolutionize a lot of things. What about other examples of use in legal that maybe isn't necessarily just bound by um, big law firms. There's smaller law firms or solos that can appreciate how blockchain might be usable in a day-to-day -day way. I think especially with the solos, um, well, and just to kind of back up, we're not, you know, from my perspective, especially in the blockchain for business, it's kind of, we call it at IBM, our first clients that have come to us to solve problems with blockchain have been in major industries like financial services, which includes insurance. We could talk about that in just a minute. To food trusts like through Walmart, we have Maersk, who's one of the largest shipping companies in the entire world. And what they're seeing is that, and their general counsels come to us saying, mm -hmm. okay, you know, we need to back the projects that our teams, you know, our production teams want to do. And they believe that blockchain is going to be the traceable allows the traceability from, for example, with Walmart from, you know, literally the, the growing on the trees. So kind of that, you know, from on the table aspect. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> yes, blockchain doesn't grow on trees. But <laughs> <laughs> no, that's pretty funny. But um, yeah, if we wanted to, to, to track, you know, an apple all the way from it growing on the tree, all the way to Walmart, as you know, Scott had talked about the issues that we had with romaine lettuce, uh, the 
good thing about is anything you got to get out of your fridge, you will know where it came from and what it was grown within. So those are the main problems that we've been solving here in the beginning. On the lease side, what we're seeing the legal teams um, being most excited about is the traceability of the data itself. Uh, we have large IT departments. I have a large automotive uh, company who wants to be able to track all of their code within blockchain. So that's the, the next step for them. And Shauna, in your work with IBM, are you part of Delaware's um, proof of concept pilot for their corporate filings? I personally am not, but I am aware of what they're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because of course, Delaware being where corporate filings are mostly done, I think that's something we can all relate to and understand. Absolutely. Well, and I think right now is they're starting to look at what that POC should look like and, you know, starting to have the first discussions on that. The biggest assistance that blockchain instance can be. What's the is, dream? Again, what, yeah. So the dream is to be able to have a system that's kind of like a smart contract. It wouldn't be called a smart contract, but it would be a smart contract. So to where if there are changes within any of the bills, and we've been talking with various congressional members about this too, is being able to track. So let's, let's take the healthcare bill that came out with Obama. That thing was five feet tall when you stacked it up. No one knew what was in it. No one knew what changes had happened. Um, everything is such a manual process right now as we're looking at everything from corporate, corporate filings to regs to even the discussions on it. And the biggest thing, of course, for attorneys is us wanting to look at, you know, what is the intention of the words that are behind the statute? What's the intention of the information behind the regulation? And that's why we all have all this wonderful annotated code, but there's not that original intention often from the people who had originally created it. And so what we can start to do is with blockchain hat being that traceable mechanism, you can see where things have changed and keep that tracked so that there's no fraudulent uh, behavior. There's no information that has been lost. It's all been tracked within blockchain. So that's kind of that overarching view from um, the various different regulators, the various different, um, you know, the team that's doing the corporate filings. So Scott, are you familiar with what they're doing in Delaware? or any of the corporate filings work? Yeah, certainly. Um, I haven't been directly involved with it, but certainly I've uh, you know, kept some track of things. You know, at times like this, I just think to myself, if only the founding fathers had this technology. Whoa, that's fascinating. Right. There'd be little yeah. discussion over what was their goal when they created yeah. these rules. Anyway, but go ahead, Scott. No, I think uh, the point that Shauna has made there with respect to corporate filings, again, just goes to if, if we can make a process more transparent, if we can put it as a matter of public record, if we can increase the confidence that the records we're looking at haven't in any way been, you know, uh, held only by a single party who's, uh, activities are opaque to us, then we're going to feel more comfortable with the records themselves. Um, I was actually going to go on to the topic of smart contracts since Great. it's been raised a couple of times and I would kind of like to touch on that. I would do it, however, in the context, first of all, understand that a smart contract, the notion, which I'm about to explain, is something that is one of those layers built on top of the basic blockchain. Um, just like the tokens contained in Bitcoin, it's simply a layer that's built on top of these foundational records. But having said that, let, let me illustrate it with a couple of examples. Great, we love examples. First, wh well, what's a smart contract? Well, in a sense, it's something that processes in an automated way. And maybe the easiest example to think of that is not actually a smart contract, but that starts to speak about what its features are, is something like your monthly cell phone bill. Namely, you know, let's say I pay $50 a month um, for cell phone service. And how does that actually work in practice? Well, 
I don't have someone call me up on the phone from the cell phone provider and said and say, well, um, it is the first of the month, you know, and so <laughs> it's, it's time it's time to pay us the fifty dollars. And I say, well, but is it really the first of the month where I am? Or, in other words, there's not a lot of dispute about the facts. Okay, and as a result, what happens is that that process is simply automated. There's, in effect, a computer program sitting at Verizon or Sprint or whatever that that has an if-then statement somewhere embedded in it. If the calendar says it's the first of the month, then you have the right to draw $50 out of Scott's bank account. That's an automated contract, if mm -hmm. you will. Now, what, what makes it not yet a smart contract? Well, That's a dumb contract? In a, in a sense, think of that as an automated um, contract, but not one that, and here's the real difference. One person is in more of a position of control than the other. Namely, it's Verizon or Sprint's computers that that's running on. They get to decide when to pull the money. Okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the notion of a smart contract builds on top of a blockchain because the blockchain is distributed. It can be something that is neither in the control of Verizon or in the control of Scott. Something that, because of its distributed nature, it just it executes. As soon as it gets an input that says it's the first of the month, it reaches into my account, puts it into Verizon's account. No one's in a position of preferential power there. <laughs> and that, I think, is that's the the what's exciting about the notion of smart contract but i should add that even though there's much talk about smart contracts there's very little um commerce that is actually transaction on these distributed automated outside of either party's control um basis yet it's it's, it's a promising technology, but it's not here yet. Actually, you can think of it a little bit as analogous to the way escrow works, right? In the sense that mm -hmm. you know, the funds are deposited and whatnot, but they're no longer under the control of the parties. They, the ex escrow gets executed or dispersed, you know, based on some neutral other party. And the, the concept of smart contract is that we could do that on a massive scale with all sorts of situations. Uh, that's the notion of smart contract. Whereas right now, the situation we have, unfortunately, it's the, the, the large institutions have more control over it than the individual users. So for example, imagine that you were renting a car. People used to rent cars before there was Uber. And what happens is you get a rental reservation and they give you a confirmation number and you show up at the counter and you say, here's my confirmation number. And they look it up in the database and they say, okay, here's your car. But imagine what happens if there's a discrepancy, namely, so oh, here's my confirmation number. I and they know. say, and they say, well, we don't have any record of it. Okay. Who's got the power there? Okay. It's the Hertz or the Avis, but with a smart contract and the blockchain more generally, in essence, what you bring as your confirmation number is just as valid as their entire database. Mm. And they no longer can play that game. You, you, and that's part of this. the appeal. That's part of why people that have libertarian or egalitarian leadings get so excited about some of these things is that it becomes much more peer to peer and not kind of big guy versus little guy. It's not just a distributed ledger, it's distributed power. Yes, that's, right? a, great, that's a great phrase. It goes to why um, blockchain and its long-run implications get people excited above and beyond the dollars and cents. There's this feeling that it's kind of equalizing yeah. and, and liberating. And the only caution I add is that Yes, it has the potential to do all of those things, but getting the details right is at least as important 
for it to have those implications. And I, I mention that just because some people just want to say, well, it's blockchain, so we're all free at last or you know something. And, and there's a big jump between realizing that sort of mythical dream and what the technology actually does and is capable of. And if people aren't careful, um, they'll assume that we're already there in the promised land, whereas there's just an awful lot of basic work that has to be done for these kinds of aspirational notions to be realized. Shana? Well, and one of the things with smart contracts is it allows us to trade items you know, all over the world. And so since we're starting to become a global economy and continuing to grow in that direction, uh, it's amazing. I actually had a trade of, well, so it was money for shoes. So I've seen okay. some Louboutin shoes on one of the, uh, one of the like trading websites. And I was so excited. They were beautiful. I looked it up. They looked real. So I had um, it. And surprisingly to me, it was built on a blockchain system. So I had paid my money, my money sat in escrow, and the way that it's set up, uh, the smart contract is set up, is she ships, so she shipped the shoes to me. As soon as I received them and I accepted them, then she would get paid. So it would, would mm -hmm. sit in the escrow like Scott explained. Now the problem was, is when I received them, they were clearly fake. Hmm. <laughs> it looked like somebody had nail polish the bottom of them. It was hmm. pretty bad. And so I immediately, you know, it, and everything is built on an app. So all the blockchain um, apps themselves as an app and I denied them and I sent them back. As soon as I sent them back and she received them and I got my money back. And it helps with fraudulent transfers like that. So I can trade with a human being I have, you know, never met before. And we have a back and forth that's very managed through the apps that are built to be used in blockchain. Hey, before we go on, let's take a quick break and listen to some messages from our sponsors. If you're missing calls, appointments, and potential clients, it's time to work with Nexa Professional. More than just an answering service, Nexa's virtual receptionists are available 24-7 to schedule appointments, qualify leads, respond to emails, integrate with your firm's software, and much more. Nexa ensures your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-267-9371 or visit them at nexa.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Law Clerk is where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Whether you need a research memo or a complicated appellate brief, our network of freelance lawyers have every level of experience and expertise. Signing up is free and there are no monthly fees. Only pay the flat fee price you set. Use rebate code NEWSOLO to get a $100 Amazon gift card when you complete your next project. Learn more at lawclerk.legal. Okay, we're back. I've got Shauna Hoffman and Scott Stornett with me. We're talking about blockchain, Bitcoin, and all kinds of cool things. Well, I want to ask you one more thing before I let the two of you go, because we've danced around it a little bit. And I think for a lot of us, when we hear blockchain, we obviously think Bitcoin. And Scott, you mentioned um, that the libertarians and or the crypto libertarians are, you know, and I'm going to put myself in that category. We're against the institutions and the big man. So um, this whole notion of commerce and creating a way to distribute the power um, and the authentication is, I think, what is at the heart of Bitcoin. So give us an idea of, uh, we know now that Bitcoin is built on blockchain, and it's just confusing because mm -hmm. they have a lot of the same letters. But give us a little bit of the technology on that, and then again, the day-to-day -day uses, because I think that's definitely a place where a lot of us are tempted to buy Bitcoin. And I tell lawyers all the time, um, said so you should buy, you should create your Bitcoin account now because if you get hacked and a cyber criminal is gonna ask you for money to get your files back, which happens every single day in law firms, it's gonna take you three or four days alone to set up your Bitcoin account, which makes your ransom go up. So I have this one friend who's actually been on my show. This happened to her. She opened the Bitcoin account and she has kept it. And she has told every one of her friends in the legal and through her bar association, if you need Bitcoins, I'm here for you because I've got an account. I've got a wallet and um, she's willing to help because it just takes so long to create the account and set it up. Sure. So let me speak to Bitcoin 
in a way that I hope is responsive to your question, but also gives people a better understanding back to the notion I said before about how there's the sort of basic blockchain and then these layers that are built on top of it. So the, the dream of Bitcoin, and I, I want to switch now from saying Bitcoin to the idea of a truly distributed digital currency, mm-hmm. is that we could interact peer to peer with a minimal or, or essentially no intermediary without having to go through a bank or someone that's going to charge interest. The appeal of that is is self-evident. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also important to understand that Bitcoin itself falls somewhere short of that dream. And this goes back to the comment I made before about the fact that the work that Satoshi did was certainly a great breakthrough. But that doesn't mean that it should get a pass in terms of evaluating how well does it do this? How well does it do that? How well does it do that? And one of the things that's at the heart of Bitcoin is a very um, intriguing incentive system for why people should hold on to the records that validate Bitcoin and why they should continue to transact on Bitcoin. And those so-called mining incentives create Mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit of there are some positive benefits to it, but those are also at the heart of the instability that gets created in the price of Bitcoin, for example. And that, in a large sense, has unfortunately rendered the particular attempt at building a currency, the particular attempt known as Bitcoin, has turned it into a largely speculative effort falling back on the notion that it's more like a store of value rather than something that is on a day-to-day basis, something that we use to buy a hamburger or buy shoes or buy a bag. And so again, it's, I'm not trying to rain on Bitcoin's parade, but I do want listeners to understand there's a distinction between this ideal of creating a kind of frictionless global currency which I very much think is inevitable and a desirable end from the particular attempt at it that's represented by Bitcoin. So I think what we're actually going to see on a more pragmatic basis is a kind of intermediate step where we see the emergence of so-called stable coins. And these are digital currencies but for the effort at keeping them from being volatile so that we can know that a a unit today is not going to turn into two units tomorrow or a half a unit uh, tomorrow, that these things are initially being pegged to the traditional currencies, pounds or euros or the dollar and so forth. And so they start to offer a kind of halfway solution, some of the benefits that we desire, but not entirely set free from the various national institutions that are um, trying to use monetary policy to keep prices relatively stable, but still allow for growth. So I think it's important to understand that there's a dream And then there's sort of the reality of where we are uh, today. For example, just to cite another example, the, you know, the the goal was that everyone would have essentially their own accounts and they could trade amongst each other in Teralia. But in fact, what you find is in this attempt, and again, it's only one attempt, Bitcoin's case, to create this egalitarian situation, you you end up with a great concentration of power, so-called mining power, off in you know, Western China. And so the dream is a great idea. I think we're eventually going to get there. But um, the reality is it's, it's a not yet uh, realized thing. And I take your point about paying ransomware, but um, just to be the 
you know, the, uh, the fuddy duddy at the party, you know, before you start worrying about making sure that you're ready to pay your ransomware, why not just uh, back up your data every day and yes. put it at an offsite location so that you kind of preempt the need to have to pay ransomware and therefore maybe you don't need that. I'm giving point. you an internet hug right now, Scott, okay. because I would love to see lawyers get rid of servers and start using secure cloud-based solutions. Uh, that's a whole nother episode, but yes, I agree with you completely. Um, and it is a terrifying thing for lawyers when that happens. Shauna, anything you want to add on about Bitcoin? You got any good stories? Because, and, and I should say too, I'll ask this dumb question just to make sure we cover it. Bitcoin is one of many cryptocurrencies that have been born off the blockchain. It was just, as you, I think you started, it was kind of the first use of the blockchain that became a big deal. So we're all used to hearing Bitcoin, but there are other cryptocurrencies that are available. Ethereum, uh, there's several of them, but that's just the one. It's kind of like tissue. We call it all tissue. Call it all. Yeah. Kleenex, well, call it all Kleenex. But, but it's Kleenex all, gets know. the, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and in the end, the world is moving to digital currency. We see that over in China right now, where they, they just came out with their digital currency and the citizens are required to use it. You know, here in the United States, yeah, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Most everyone uses Alipay over there. And um, I think I and remember. And WeChat Pay. And WeChat, thank you, thank you. That's what I was looking for. So that's already being used and being tracked, of course, by their government. But as we start to look at the other countries, very similar, they're coming up, their um, digital currency is, of course, going to be their sovereign currency. Here in the United States, we have some amazing movements going on. Uh, the Federal Reserve has come out saying that our digital currency, they um, are looking into it and expecting 2025 is what we heard last. Oh. Uh, although I see Daniel Gorfin and a few others are uh, looking at uh, building out our digital currency or trying to work on that and have that have sovereign currency earlier than the 2025. So we have some really amazing years, um, especially many who were at the F uh, CF CFTC and now we're moving off into um, their own private companies to continue to work on you know the same subject matter that they were before. So pretty fascinating. It is, and I think this is where we're probably going to realize some some common and simple uses. QuickBooks allows me to turn on Bitcoin if I want to take payments that way. And the Nebraska issued an ethics opinion on Bitcoin, which is weird because it's Nebraska, and you think, what's Nebraska doing? Well, it turns out that it is a hotbed for miners, and they had to address the ethics issues associated with Bitcoin. So there's a whole white paper that they, or an ethics opinion, sorry, that they put out um, about that. If listeners are interested in learning more, you can just put in Nebraska ethics opinion, cryptocurrency. It's pretty fascinating. <laughs> it is. Well, it's a great practice area to get into also. Sure. You know, yeah. I definitely see those colleagues of mine who are now um, leaders, actually, you know, Joshua Ashley Klayman and Kuzar is now linked leaders as one of their leaders in blockchain. And then we have Michelle Gitlitz is at, um, Crawl Mooring, and she is, again, one of the, the blockchain leaders. So it's pretty fascinating to see it amazing is. women who are rising, you know, through probably not a glass ceiling for them since they're rock stars, but, you know, rising through the ranks um, and taking on these tough practice areas. There's always a place for lawyers. You know, every time I hear someone say, oh, the robots, they're going to take, get rid of the lawyers. I'm like, are you kidding? We're going to need lawyers more than ever. The way technology is evolving and all the interactions and resources and contracts. I mean, there's endless supply of work. Well, before I let you go, I want to make sure and give you an opportunity to let our listeners know how they can find, friend, or follow you if you are on social media or just have an email that you like to share if people want to reach out and ask any questions. Shauna, do you want to start? Yeah, I think the easiest way to reach out to me is, of course, through LinkedIn, and it's Shauna Hoffman, and it's S-H-A-W-N-N-A, -N -N and then Hoffman with H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And then I also have um, a Twitter feed uh, that often I will uh, post things to, and it's at Cognitive Legal. Great. What about you, Scott? Um, I'm just going to stick with LinkedIn. Great. And uh, we uh, handle updates there. Uh, there's also a, um, you can also go to uh, yugenpartners.com slash media. Y-U-G-E-N? Y-U-G-E-N, yugenpartners.com slash media. And you can follow uh, some of the work that we're doing in the more concentrated in the business as opposed to the public sector there. But LinkedIn's always a good start. It is. 
Well, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been a really interesting and fascinating conversation, and I, I really, really thank you both very much. Well, looks like we've reached the end of our time together, listeners, so I appreciate you tuning in for another episode. If you like what you've heard today, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a nice review on iTunes. We'll see you next time, and remember, you're not alone. You're a new solo. Thanks for listening to New Solo with host Adriana Linares. Tune in again to learn more about how to successfully run your new practice, Solo, here on Legal Talk Network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.